Good morning, church. It's good to be together. Happy New Year. I uh, hope you guys all had a wonderful New Year, all those that are watching online as well. Uh, how many of you actually stayed up until midnight? Okay, a couple of you. I heard a lot of people that just went to bed a little bit early, uh, which is what I did actually. So uh, that's a, a good way to bring in the New Year as well, just a good early night uh, to start off 2021. Uh, in the, the coming years, or sorry, the coming weeks, let me take a moment here. In the coming weeks that we're going to be talking about the book of Ephesians and Philippians, uh, which I'm really excited to be preaching through. Ephesians and Philippians are two of my very favorite books in all of the Bible. Uh, if you're allowed to have favorites, those are my two favorites. And so I'm excited uh, just to be able to preach on those two books. And today... We're going to be kicking off our theme for the year 2021, uh, which is all things new. And so it comes from the passage that I'm going to be preaching on uh, in just a moment. We're going to preach on Revelation chapter 21. And I don't want to steal my own thunder here, uh, but John uh, writes the book of Revelation. And at the very end of the book of Revelation, he gives this vision in which Jesus says, I am making all things new. And uh, maybe on the heels of 2020, uh, that might be really refreshing words to hear. Uh, but in God's comprehensive plan for the world, which, by the way, was not put on hold in 2020, uh, God was still unfolding His plan. Uh, even if some of our plans were adjusted, it wasn't like God put us on hold. He had to go run some errands and put us on hold so we could listen to some like pre-recorded, depressing country music or something like that. Uh, Wow, that stung for some of you. Um, nonetheless, <laughs> uh, he's really leaving. Uh, but God's comprehensive plan for the world, uh, he's making all things new. It's not a few things. It's not some things. It's not many things. It's not even most things. But it's all things new. And that's our theme for this coming year. And though much might seem like it's the same old thing in 2021, unless Jesus comes back, uh, in that time frame, uh, we, uh, sorry, we can be renewed. We can be a community, a people of, of renewal, and even be agents of renewal in the world around us. And on our way to all things new, whenever that's fully realized, we don't know, but we have a constant need to be renewed ourselves. Uh, we have a need for daily renewal, weekly renewal, uh, we have uh, a need even for yearly renewal so that we can be the people that God calls us to be. Amen? Uh, we often need renewal. Uh, I know I often need renewal in my own life. Uh, I think about how we can so easily get into a rut spiritually. Uh, some of our relationships can easily get stale. Uh, maybe what used to be fresh and engaging and exciting suddenly becomes monotonous and routine. And in those moments, what we need is to be renewed. And so without renewal, uh, we merely become an outer shell of what we ought to be spiritually. Uh, we have a sort of zombie-like existence, uh, and yet we can be renewed because of God's Spirit, because of God's people in our lives. We could have this renewal that the Bible so often talks about. I'm confident we're going to pick up some of those thoughts in the coming weeks, but for today, we're going to focus in on Revelation chapter 1, which is the grand finale of the biblical story. And so we're going to talk about this, and we'll get to the passage in just a moment. 
But I first just want to talk about the story of the Bible. Uh, this is, by the way, a very brief version, if you can see that, of the story. Uh, we obviously know it begins with God creating heaven and earth. Uh, there's a fall of humanity. And then eventually there is redemption through Christ. And at the end of it all, there's this grand restoration that we're going to read about in just a moment. Many people start early on in the year with a plan to read the Bible in a year. Any of you going to read the Bible in a year? Some of you. Uh, full disclosure, I have never read the Bible in a year. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm a slow reader or I don't think it's because of lack of discipline. Uh, but I tend to take longer to read through the Bible, and to try to force it in a year can often feel like I'm just rushing through the Bible, and I know I don't want to do that, and I'm sure you guys don't want to do that as well. So if you're going to read through the Bible in a year, more power to you, but I imagine for a lot of people we end up getting lost and confused in the biblical story really quickly. Uh, you get into books like Leviticus and Job, and you don't know where you are in this story at that point. And so, uh, sometimes that's because we read the Bible in disconnected you know, pieces, but other times it's because the Bible simply isn't laid out book after book like chapters in a history book. So reading the Bible can easily feel like you start watching a Netflix series, and you watch through the first episode, then you fall asleep, which is what I always do when I watch TV or go to a movie, uh, you fall asleep and you wake up about seven episodes later and you have no idea what's going on in the story. You don't know who the individual characters are, what's happening. You don't know what the plot line is. Is this couple still together or did they break up? It's so easy to get lost in the story. And that's really true as we read the Bible for a lot of people. And yet it matters that we understand the story of the Bible. It really matters that you get the full picture of what God is doing throughout all of humanity because it's God's story of his relationship with humanity and you're involved in the story. Uh, I, I'm reminded of a movie. Uh, it was, came out in the 1980s, The NeverEnding Story. Uh, it's a great movie, uh, but it was uh, based on a book by the same name. It was written by a German author. And the main character is this 10-year-old boy named Bastian. And Bastion is raised by a single dad. His mom had passed away. And he's getting bullied in high school, or not high school, bullied in school. And at, in the early part of the movie, he's running from these bullies who are chasing after him. And they're trying to throw him into a garbage can. And so he's running and he sneaks around the corner and ducks into this old bookstore. Uh, and he's sort of huffing and puffing and catching his breath. And the bullies run by. And then he realizes he's in this dark bookstore that just has piles and piles of books. It's seemingly empty. And then he hears this voice of this grouchy old bookstore owner that says, get out of here. I don't like kids. And the boy starts talking to this man and, and the old man tries to shoo him down to the arcade. And so he tries to send him down the street and he says, I just sell small rectangular objects called books and they require a little effort on your part kind of scolding this boy. So the boy defends himself and he says, I know books. I've read Treasure Island and Last of the Mohicans and Wizard of Oz and Lord of the Rings and Tarzan. And after a further exchange between this old bookstore owner and the boy, 
the little boy notices a book that he was reading, the bookstore owner. And he says, what's that book about? Asks Bastion. Oh, this is something special, says the bookstore owner. Well, what is it? The bookstore owner says, look, your books are safe. By reading them, you get to become Tarzan or Robinson Crusoe, but, but that's what I like about them, replies Bastion. Ah, but afterwards, you get to be a little boy again. What do you mean, asks Bastion? Listen, says the man, have you ever been Captain Nemo, trapped inside your submarine while the giant squid is attacking you? Yes, says Bastion. Weren't you afraid that you couldn't escape? But it's only a story, says Bastion. That's what I'm talking about, says the man. The ones you read are safe, but this one isn't. And as the owner goes off and he takes a call, the, the boy you know, takes the book and begins reading the book, and it's about this uh, place called Fantasia, a fantasy land that's being threatened by this darkness that destroys everything it touches. And the kingdom needs the help of a human child to survive. And when Bastion reads a description of himself in the book, he begins to wonder if Fantasia is real and needs him to survive. He becomes a part of the never-ending story. You know, here's the, the mistake that many people make with the Bible. Many people think it's only a pretend story. They read it and they hear it, but afterwards they just go back to their same old life again. And yet the Bible is not safe. The Bible, God, intends for us to be caught up into the story of the Bible, to involve ourselves in the storyline and to become a part of it ourselves. So let's read here in Revelation chapter 21. We're going to see the end of the story, and if we fail to understand the end of the story, we're going to fail to understand how our lives are to function within God's world. Revelation 21 and verse 1. Stevie, could you maybe give me a glass of water or something? Thanks. Um, <clears throat> in chapter 21, verse 1, it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Thank you. Perfect timing. Amen. It doesn't say to the raspy, it just says to the thirsty. Uh, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. 
Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. You know, the book of Revelation is a, a book that's filled with all sorts of jarring imagery. Uh, there's symbolism that's drawn from the Old Testament. Uh, and in these last couple chapters of which we're just scratching the surface, God is weaving together these story, the threads throughout the storyline of the Bible, and He's weaving them together into this beautiful tapestry. The paradise that was depicted in the Garden of Eden now becomes restored in the new heaven and the new earth that John describes. The first heaven and the first earth that was marred by sin and chaos and the old order of things that we're all too familiar with in our world is described as finally passing away in John's vision. I just looked on social media this morning and there's a friend of ours that just lost her brother who was young. And it just described in social media, just had a picture and described the hurt and pain I feel is indescribable. And so many people experience that. We're all going to experience that in one way or another. And yet, the Bible tells us that at some point, that's going to pass away. You know, there's no sea that John describes. The sea is this picture of chaos. Often in the Bible, the sea is the place where the waters are raging. It's in need of being rebuked. It's the place where the beasts kind of rise up in the book of Revelation out of the sea. And yet, John describes a vision in which the sea is no more. There's no tears or death or mourning or pain. And in this final vision, it's describing with all this imagery, it describes the same reality that God is going to be intimately with His people in this glorious end to the story. And the prospect of this final victory, that all of humanity is a part of this story, and this is where it's all leading to, the prospect of the final victory should provide the nudge that we need to press on towards the victory now. Yes. To press on towards that which is new now. And I'll ask you this question. If you had unlimited time, unlimited knowledge, power, and resources... How would you go about changing the world? You know, would you just complain until the world changes? That doesn't change anything. Would you try to change it immediately? If you had all power, would you just go, let's just snap your fingers and make it different? Well, God actually didn't do that. God chose to be patient and give people time to repent so that they would not be judged, but they would have a chance at salvation. Would you decide to change the world through legislation? Well, that's not inherently bad, but God chose heart transformation. Would you try to come up with some sort of organization in the world that would do all sorts of good? Well, God chose to create a people that are His very own, His church. That's you and I. The only one who ever had unlimited time, knowledge, power, and resources thought that his imperfect church, filled with the Holy Spirit, 
was the primary vehicle for building his church and changing the world. And sometimes that's messy in the short term, but that's God's way. That's how God intends to impact and influence the world. You know, we're a part of this story that's headed towards the new heavens and the new earth. And the story isn't safe. I think it was talked about in the, the welcome that it calls us to live with anticipation of this glorious end and to involve ourselves by obedience to Jesus and walking by faith today. You know, the second thing I would point out, the first thing I would point out is that we're a part of God's story, but the second thing that jumps out at me in this passage is the one who sits on the throne says, I am making all things new in verse 5. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. You know, God is seated on the throne in this passage, and what he says is trustworthy and true. By the way, God is not in the habit of lying. And so when he says these words are trustworthy and true, he's basically saying you better listen up because this is really important. And if you don't grasp this, you're missing out on something that is crucial for your faith. You know, the first thing to notice is, notice is that you're part of God's story. But the second thing to notice is that although you're a part of God's story, you're not the main character. There's somebody else that's on the throne. God is the one on the throne, and He's the one rightfully seated there and deserving our worship. You know, we may hear a message about all things new, and the temptation is to immediately go, well, if God's going to make all things new, this is great, because there's a bunch of little things that annoy me and frustrate me and irritate me, and now God's going to get on my bandwagon and make all those things new and fix those things? So encouraging. Well, I suppose that's a part, true in part. God is going to fix everything in the world that maybe has been like sandpaper on your soul for the last year of your life. But the biggest problem in the world is most likely not what annoys you or me on a day-to-day -day basis. The biggest problem in the world is that people do not give the one on the throne his rightful worship. Idolatry is not a problem. It is the problem in the world. Every sin, every you know, facet of evil stems from the idolatry that often goes on everywhere in our world. You know, right now, in the world, there's 3,000 animistic tribes in Africa that worship false gods and spirits, and none of those gods and spirits deserve their worship. There are 300 million Buddhists in Japan, Laos, and Vietnam who follow Buddhist rules and regulations, and Buddha is not worthy of their worship. There is 950 million Hindus in India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and Maltese who follow more gods than you or I could possibly fathom, and there's only one God who deserves worship. There's over a billion people in communist China, North Korea, and Cuba who grew up with atheistic philosophies and deny the existence of God, and there is a God that deserves our worship. There's 1.5 billion Muslims in Central Asia, Middle East, and North Africa who are fasting and giving alms and making holy pilgrimages to Mecca and praying five times a day to a false God, and He does not deserve their worship. 
A little closer to home, there's easily 200 plus million people by the loosest doctrinal standards who are separated from Christ in North America and instead give their attention to every gadget they can find because the one commandment people live by in America is thou shalt be entertained. That ought not be. There is somebody on the throne that begs us. He doesn't beg us, but he calls us to worship him. You look earlier in Revelation chapter 5. We see an earlier picture in the book of Revelation of the one on the throne. And in chapter 5 and verse 1, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of, da- the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is an incredibly bleak picture at the start of this passage. No one could open the seals. No one was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll, which contained, in a generic sense, God's plan for the world and destiny for the world. And at first, the weeping over this this inability to open the scroll is there, but then it turns into worship. In verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand, They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is an awesome picture of worship. You know, we orient, just like all of these angels, all the living creatures, orient around the throne to worship the one who is worthy. This is what we do now in our own lives as we put Jesus at the very center of our life. And we orient our hearts and minds and life around Him. This is what will be the most evident in the new heaven and the new earth. Everything will be centered around the throne. Just imagine 10,000 times 10,000 angels. I don't imagine that these numbers are intended to be precise, but that's 100 million angels. And so picture this. This last Super Bowl, 2020 was at Hard Rock Stadium in Florida. 
It was the Kansas City Chiefs. They defeated the San Francisco 49ers. And there were 62,000 plus in attendance. And so if you attended the Super Bowl last year, you would be one of those 62,000 people. And imagine everyone just going crazy. At the loudest moments, you can't even hear your own voice. You can feel the sheer volume of the stadium making your chest cavity vibrate. People have their faces painted in adoration of their favorite team. And now imagine you're going to go and do a, a little bit of a renovation project. Because there were 99.9 .9 million viewers who watched from home. And so let's say we want to take those 99.9 .9 million and we're going to bring them on into the stadium and give them a seat. So let's knock out a few walls. Let's add a few rows of seating. And so now there's all of these seats, and if you look around and you're on the 50-yard line, you're just seeing one row after another all the way around the stadium of 100 million people at the Super Bowl cheering and screaming and doing whatever else they do. And now, let's take it a step further and let's swap out all of those feeble, fallen human beings and let's replace them with 100 million angels. Not the kinds we see in comic strips, the fat babies floating in the air playing harps, the kinds we see in the Bible who people fall down in worship because they're tempted to worship the angel. They are fearful and trembling before the angel. And now there's a hundred million angels and plus every living creature in heaven and on earth and it's all directed towards the throne. Yeah, this is an incredible picture of worship. Is the throne, is God at the center of your life? We have a sense of the picture in the book of Revelation, and from that throne comes the words, I am making all things new. Is Jesus at the center of everything in your life? Your thoughts, your marriage, your household, your future plans and decision-making, your relationships. Is He the focal point of your life. Now, lastly, you know, if the first thing to notice is that we're a part of God's story, and the second thing is that we're not the main character, well, the third thing to notice is that, like in any good story, we must overcome. You know, notice in verse 7 of chapter 21, it says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. You know, the word victorious, it's the Greek, the Greek word for victorious is this, in the same word family as the word Nike, which means victory. And so the word describes somebody who conquers, who prevails, who overcomes and triumphs. Jesus is the one who triumphs most clearly in the book of Revelation, but everyone who follows him is called to triumph and have victory as well. You know, it's used several times in the book of Revelation, most noticeably addressing the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And the call to be victorious always includes the resources to do so. The overwhelming message of the book of Revelation is that God is going to lead us to victory. We can live victorious lives. And if we contrast the call to be victorious with the main problems that were going on in the seven churches in the book of Revelation, in chapters 2 and 3, we would 
find the, the call to rekindle our first love and to withstand persecution and to resist worldliness and to hold the sound doctrine and to wake up and be strengthened spiritually and to be useful in God's kingdom instead of lukewarm. You know, I don't, I don't know how you felt throughout 2020. At various times, I would say I felt pretty beat up. I felt challenged. I think in this last year, there were relationship challenges in the church that were difficult to work through. At times, I felt emotionally drained, fatigued. It was difficult to stay motivated. My patience was tested. My kindness towards others, even in our household, was tested. And yet, in all of that, the pressures that we feel, it's easy to go to comfort food and entertainment and all sorts of other things to cope with those things. But you will not drift into a victorious life. You are going to have to make decisions in your life to be victorious in 2021. You're going to have to make decisions to be honest about where you're at, to repent and be righteous, to invest and reinvest again in the kingdom, to do your part in God's story. You're going to have to think through the decisions that you have to make just like I do so that we could have all things new in our own lives and to impact the world around us. Amen? We will have a song at this time, and then this is going to lead us into communion. After the song, I'll lead us in a prayer for the Lord's Supper.